Hello and welcome to the Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Regan Bozeman, co-founder of Lattice Capital. Regan started his crypto career at CoinList, where he was responsible for the launch of several of the industry's largest protocols. He then leveraged his go-to-market experience and partnered with his CoinList co-worker, Mike Zajko, to launch Lattice Capital, an early-stage-focused crypto VC firm. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Seniors Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Seniors Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Seniors Studio. I am your faithful host, Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. As you all know, in this podcast, we love to interview crypto's best and brightest hedge fund and venture fund managers. And today's show, we have an OG in the crypto space, someone who helped pioneer token launches as a core primitive for this asset class, and who then parlayed that experience into launching one of the preeminent early stage funds in the space. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce the Senius Studio audience to Regan Bozeman of Lattice Capital. How's it going, Regan? It's it's going well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, there's a lot to jam on, and we had the pleasure of meeting each other a couple months ago in, in the wintry slopes of Jackson Hole, and now when crypto winter is thawing a little bit and, and actual winter is thawing, so... There's a lot of excitement in the crypto community right now. But before we jump into modern day, would love to introduce you to the audience. So what's your background? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And what were some of your early experiences that led you to crypto? Yeah, um, I, I wish we were still in Jackson. I guess maybe it's uh, it's appropriate that in the crypto winter, I have to be in San Francisco working <laughs> Maybe maybe pay for the next next trip out there. Yeah, well, it's it's really good to be here. You know, I can start as far back as my birth, thirty one years ago. I grew up in New York City in Manhattan. Um, kind of always been interested in like business and tech stuff. I remember like selling Pokemon cards as a, as as a kid and trying to like run some hustles that way. Then I, I went to Harvard undergrad, studied history and, and economics, and you know there I had a few internships in college at startups. Really, really loved that. I had an internship at a hedge fund called Bridgewater, which I absolutely hated. So I knew I, I didn't want to do. And then worked at a few tech companies after college, but kind of the the immediate journey to crypto started in 2016 when I moved out to San Francisco to work on the deal team at Angelus. <clears throat> so if people aren't familiar, Angel has just sort of built this marketplace of capital going into early stage start- startups, kind of like a marketplace for venture. And we ended up spinning out a company called CoinList about a year and a half after I joined. This is like fall 2017. 
really to build a similar business in crypto, essentially a marketplace for capital going into primary offerings of, of crypto assets. And so, yeah, that was kind of the the journey there. You know, I joined, I knew absolutely nothing about crypto when I started. And this was, you know, a different cycle, a different time. Still, there was a lot of hype then. I think everything was like way dumber than it was last cycle. I'm happy to go go into that. But uh, yeah, that was a little over um, five years ago. And yeah, now, you know, it's kind of been a winding path. But one of the two co-founders at, at Lattice, and yeah, we, we just we try to be the best early stage partner to, uh, to crypto founders. Yeah, I'd love to touch on what the impetus was for AngelList to develop this new initiative and how you specifically raised your hand to get involved in a leader within this new program focused specifically on crypto assets. What was the, the process that went into the development of this new initiative? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the credit, like Naval Ravikant, who's one of the co-founders of AngelList, was really early into crypto. And I think one of the more kind of, one of the more prominent, like influential Silicon Valley people to be excited about crypto early on. So I, I don't know exactly when his journey started, but I imagine, I think like 2013, 2014, he was, you know, making small angel checks in, in crypto companies and, and really ahead of the curve. So I think AngelList journey kind of, there, there's two ways to look at that is spinning out CoinList. One is the ways in which the capital formation process for crypto companies is similar and, and one is to look at, look at the ways it's different from kind of their core business. So, you know, AngelList saw, and specifically Nibol, saw this opportunity to kind of build a like regulated compliant platform for companies to raise token sales because a lot of that core product was very similar to AngelList. So AngelList had already built, you know, very good workflows to aggregate money to special purpose vehicles, make it very easy for startup founders to raise money abstract away banking rails and the compliance process, just make a process that was a lot of pen and paper and a lot of DocuSign's very easy. And a lot of that workflow is is similar in crypto. But it was it was different in that, you know, you imagine the way most seed stage startups raise money, right? They want to do it privately. They don't want to share a lot of public information about what they're doing. Maybe there's like 10 people coming into a seed round. Crypto is very different in that people building networks tended to actually want a lot of participants in, in their private financing rounds. And, you know, then they were also distributing crypto assets rather than like equities or something kind of at the end of the process. So, you know, I think AngelList both saw that they needed to build custom software for this, but they also saw that they already had a lot of the building blocks in place and they saw a big opportunity. And so we... As part of the Filecoin, you know, and, and Protocol Labs, the team behind Filecoin was was very deeply involved in the sort of launch of CoinList. Kind of looked as looked at that as like this is an ideal first customer. You know, we knew this was going to be a very prominent token sale. Ended up kind of being the largest one of that era. They raised about two hundred million dollars, and so that was really kind of the launch of it. It was like sort of a joint venture on the Filecoin token sale. You know, I knew nothing about crypto. I don't think I knew what an ERC twenty token was when I started, but my boss at AngelList, Graham Jenkins, who was the CLO there, and then kind of came over to help run CoinList. He is awesome and would go work for him doing anything. And it really just felt like there was more kind of blue ocean space to innovate in capital formation crypto. You know, seed rounds have kind of gotten done the same way for for 10 years, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're still getting done the same way in another 10. But, you know, more innovative ways to raise capital in crypto, like there was just a lot more opportunity. So 
we ended up doing a bunch of cool stuff at CoinList, like Dutch auctions and, you know, a lot of stuff on chain. And just generally these, I think, fundraisers were kind of done in, in more innovative ways than it happened. And true, so that was really what got me excited about that opportunity. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And that Filecoin moment, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to the crypto space beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and Litecoin at that time. As you guys were launching CoinList, working through Filecoin and, and starting to turn the dials to figure out what what were some of the key products that you guys built? Because at, if you look at the roster of some of the, the tokens that launched through CoinList, I mean, it's, it's impressive. It's Filecoin, but then you also have something like Stacks, and you have Cello, you have Solana, you have Near, you have Flow. Some of the biggest names in the space uh, all came through. So, what were the the product features and the insights that you took away that that enabled you to go to projects and say, "Look, you should launch via CoinList," and here are the the key takeaways we've learned that we've integrated into this launch process. Yeah. So I, I think on the software side, the answer is sadly like really boring. It's basically just like, can we make this capital formation process as easy as possible when you kind of don't need to worry about anything outside of your core business? And, you know, that that's compelling, right? If you're the Filecoin team, you're trying to build this like incredibly technically ambitious protocol, having to worry about like what KYC provider to use and like will Stripe's API support fiat payments for our token sale? Like you just don't want to think about those things. And so that pitch generally resonated with companies. I think that the the pitch to those companies was was honestly less on the tech side and more just the credibility and reputation Coinless had built. You know, I think it was a combination of there's really interesting flywheels to that, uh, really interesting flywheel to that business where you do one token sale and then you know all the people who want to come into that sale register as usual Coinlist. And so kind of each sale you did actually just like increase the, the base of users and the capital pool you could access. And so that was then like, you know, more compelling to every subsequent customer. On the flip side of that, I think CoinList was also relatively selective with the projects it worked with. You know, obviously all of these things are risky. Not all of the projects that CoinList worked with ended up panning out. But on the whole, you know, I think you look at a lot of like second tier exchange launch pads, right? You can just like throw off a lot of cash, basically launching shit coins. And investors can maybe make a bit of cash, but like that's not a good way to build a long-term reputation. And so CoinList, you know, generally like really just tried to work with credible teams who took a long-term view, who took what they were doing incredibly seriously. And so I think that really resonated with a lot of high quality projects where there was almost this like very positive signaling effect if you launched on CoinList. Absolutely. And I think you guys also built a, a reputation as yourselves as a curator. And with all the noise in crypto, it's really tough to discern which projects have merit. So there's also an element of understanding what these projects are building and how that tech is innovative and where it fits within the, the broader ecosystem and competitive landscape. Which in turn probably led to your thinking around ultimately leaving CoinList and becoming an investor and in, in founding Lattice. So walk us through that transition where you had all this experience helping launch these protocols 
to thinking that you can spot, identify, and ultimately allocate and win win a position on the cap table for the best early stage projects. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the the, the path to to Lattice was was definitely why I need one, and I think you know starts kind of before definitely before I I left Coinlist. So you know I I came out to San Francisco in 2016. Angelus was kind of my first exposure to venture, and I was like, this is really cool, right? You get to work with early stage companies, you get to work with really smart founders. This seems awesome. But like, I had no money and I had nothing to offer companies, and I, I didn't really know much about anything. And so, kind of like the three ingredients you need to like do venture investing from like an angel perspective, I had zero of those. But when I came over to Coinless and kind of after I had, you know, been working there for about six months, I think I started, you know, one was just meeting a lot of people, right? You know, if a team was considering a token and they wanted to talk to someone, I was kind of a natural person to do that, right? Just because I, I saw a lot of, of data points for my seat. And so started meeting some really interesting teams and I you know started writing like really small angel checks. I was fortunate to meet some awesome teams like OpenSea really early on. And so that was kind of like the the initial swing at investing and, and was, you know, was doing a bit of that. But then... And so Mike and I, you know, we, we started working together. My co-founder, Mike, he joined Coinless about six months after I did. And, you know, we ended up starting doing a little bit of personal investing together, which is kind of how sort of the, the early iterations of Lattice came to be. But I ended up leaving Coinlist in at basically the start of 2021. I, I think most kind of centralized crypto businesses, when they hit a certain scale, they just become like the problems there are not crypto native, right? They're just like business or fintech problems. You know, how do we scale our compliance process? How do we scale our customer support process? How do we get better at sales? And I really just like wanted to work with like earlier teams. So I, I was doing like kind of growth and go to market consulting, worked with DAOs, you know, it was like a contributor in index co-op, worked with some DeFi projects like Maples and scaling solutions like Aztec really just kind of like consulting and, and just trying to help these teams however I could. And, you know, what I noticed was a lot of these teams had really awesome investors at their cap table, but like, it seemed like the biggest gap on kind of where they needed help was like growth and go to market strategy. So whether that was like building a repeatable sales process, you know, a lot of these founders generally, they're like very technical, very few of them ever came from like enterprise sales backgrounds or launching a token, you know, it's like this weird esoteric thing, right? There's not a lot written about it. And I had just worked on many of these and kind of, you know, whether it was like how to position protocols or what vendors worked or timing or how to think about like pricing. Like I, I just had seen a lot of, of data points. And so, you know, started talking to Mike about this and it was kind of like, hey, it actually seems like a lot of funds have kind of carved out niches, right? For example, like Dragonfly early on focused on this like Asia go to market. And a lot of them have done really well with those. But the growth of the market stuff actually seems like it's it's relevant for founders. There's just like no funds that really seem to have the background to to support that. And so kind of like in the winter, like early 2021, we were hanging out up in Lake Tahoe and just like talking about, you know, what we wanted to do. And, you know, we felt like there was a gap in in the market, kind of on the sales and, and go to market side. And so I think that angle specifically of like why we felt like we could justify ourselves on, on cap tables and competitive rounds, that was really the angle we thought about the fund versus, you know, we are like excellent pickers. And so that was kind of like the genesis of of Lattice. Yeah. Launching a token and, and thinking about how to grow a network that is 
decentralized is obviously novel for these founders and these teams. They may know how to build great tech, but they may not know how to onboard users, how to engage those users, how to incentivization in the network, leveraging tokens, et cetera. I could see how that pitch resonated with both early investors into Lattice, but then also for the founders who uh, you guys were meeting at the, the early stage. I also, I, I, there's a lot that I want to discuss on Lattice, but I also wanted to touch on your experience in building Dove Metrics. Because when I found Dove Metrics, that was like a gift to me that really helped my own understanding of where innovative projects were raising capital from, who were the players in the space, et cetera. If you could just tell people what Dove Metrics is, what you built in, then wow, where is Dove Metrics today? Yeah, absolutely. And it's awesome to hear it was useful to you. I mentioned, you know, early on, I, I um, thought this like angel investing stuff was cool and nothing to offer founders. I think, you know, look at kind of like the classic playbook of like how you build a brand as, as an investor, right? And like generally, I think the kind of like cliche advice would like go be helpful to founders and like don't expect anything in return. And like at some point down the line, like that will help you build a, a brand and reputation. And so, you know, I, when I was at, at CoinList, just saw like there was this landscape of new crypto funds and some of them were fly-by-night operations, some of them were hedge funds, some of them were venture funds, some of them did tokens, some of them did equity. It was this new world and it was very opaque. I mean, honestly, today, even you look at most crypto fund websites and it's like totally useless. It like literally had zero useful information. And so talking to a lot of founders, it was just like very hard to navigate that landscape. And so early on, I just created like a Google spreadsheet of like, these are like active crypto funds and here is some useful information about them. And it was like super simple. It was like, this is their AUM. This is how they're set up. This is where they're based. Like essentially that. And this was like 2018. And I actually got really good feedback. I'm just like, hey, thank you for doing this. This was, this was really useful. And, you know. Met, met some really cool founders who would just ping me for like advice, like, hey, can you introduce me to this fund? Or like, you know, do you know if this fund is, is still operating? And so then, you know, over the next two years, just like wrote a bit more about fundraising and, you know, kind of what we were seeing, what, what I was seeing in the market. And then we ended up kind of that sort of turned into Dove Metrics, which was kind of a, a, a small data company that basically just like wanted to be the source of truth on like crypto fundraising data. And so it, it kind of transitioned from just being a Google spreadsheet to something a little like a, a more robust database where it actually had like kind of, you know, information for fundraising rounds. So you imagine something like Crunchbase, which honestly, that product is like atrocious, no offense to the Crunchbase team, but it's like very difficult to use. The crypto fundraising data has always been terrible. The free version of the product is really like just very poor. And you just built a really systematic way to like identify every publicly announced fundraising round and just like turn it into like a usable database. And then we had a newsletter tied to that that would basically just publish the rounds all week, every week. And uh, Pierre Chouville, who's now on the team at Lattice, like he he helped me kind of drive. We, we started working together on it. He helped drive a lot of building that out into something more, more robust. 
So over the last two years, it was kind of always something we were doing on the side. And even once we had Lattice, we just kept maintaining the database because honestly, no one else did. And, you know, we knew it was useful for the industry. And then in the middle of last, maybe early last year, we started talking to the Masari team, you know, we'd known them for a while and they've built this really robust, like enterprise grade crypto data infrastructure. And, you know, they were interested in kind of tying in fundraising data to, to what they had, uh, what they had built. And so... You know, we we had Lattice that was really our main focus, and we felt like it was a very natural tie-in to Missouri's business. And so we ended up selling the business to them last summer. Yeah. What, what what's the origin of the name Dove Metrics? Before I, I comment. Yes. So I'm a huge history nerd, and highly recommend anyone. So there's like this OG Bitcoin book called Digital Gold. I'm going to totally forget the author's name, but he is a New York Times columnist, and he wrote this book about Bitcoin in like 2015. And this guy, Wences Casares, who is the founder of Zappo, which is like old, it's probably still around. I think actually Coinbase bought it, but it is like a, a big, an old custody business. There was some big tech conference in like 2013, which was at the Dove Mountain Resort, which is, I think, a Four Seasons or Ritz Carlton, somewhere in Arizona. But at this event, like, showed a bunch of people Bitcoin for the first time. And there were a bunch of tech luminaries there. I don't remember exactly who, but it's like people like more entries, like at that level. But it was like specifically this event. I think he actually like demoed a Bitcoin transaction on his phone. And a lot of people who were there kind of described this as like, this is the first time a lot of people in Silicon Valley knew about Bitcoin. And so anyway, that's that's where the name, the name comes from. I, I love it. And I had no idea that was the origin because Dove Mountain is in Tucson, Arizona. And my wife's sister got married there at the the ritz carlton there so good to know that that that's also a piece of crypto history yeah it is they should have a plaque or something i've heard it's beautiful i've never i've never been i love it very cool and that information as you said like i spent a long time trying to figure out where i could source crypto funds where i could keep tabs on what deals were coming to the space and what you built at Dove Metrics was such an excellent aggregator of all that information. And now seeing it integrated within the broader Masari platform, it is a very valuable tool in the toolkit for those either raising capital or interested in the crypto asset management space. So I highly recommend it. It's it's very much worth the money uh, for those considering that. So now you have Dove Metrics. You had your Coinless experience. You had the insight into to launching Lattice. What was it like having your first fund? What was your thesis? What were you investing in? What were some of the the early projects and protocols? Um, and then maybe as you're now focused on Fund Two. What were some of the insights that you took from fund one that you rolled into building and, and raising for fund two? Yeah. So it was it was really fun and it was hard. We had made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot and I kinda of like unpack all of you know, essentially, yeah, like Mike and I started talking about the fund, as I mentioned, like early twenty twenty one over the winter. We kind of started putting a deck together and like kind of had this story and we were really fortunate to put together a $20 million fund kind of over the summer of 2021. You know, the markets were like very different then. It was a pretty frothy time. 
But, you know, I think we had a, a really tight story on what we could offer to teams. And I think also, you know, we wanted to just do really stage investing. We wanted to keep the fund small, which was very different than what a lot of managers did. And so I think that story resonated. There, you know, I think a lot of the investing, we, we had no professional investing experience really before. A lot of it was just tripped by what we had done on the angel side. And, you know, maybe the good and the bad side of like, just putting your own money to work is like, you don't really need to think about much, right? It's like, do I have to make this investment or not? And like, can I afford it? And essentially like that is it. Things like fund construction, things like time to exit, right? It's, if you want to think about that, sure, but like, you don't have to. And so, you know, things like fund construction, we just started having to think a lot more about, right? For example, like if we can get a $20,000 check into this like really deal we're excited about, that just like doesn't really make sense in the context of the fund size wise. We probably shouldn't do that. So we we started to have to think a lot more about that. And then I think the other big thing was just like round dynamics, right? My general view is just like, let's just look at a three million dollar seed round. Like it is not that hard to get a twenty five thousand dollar check in. It's a lot harder to kind of get a two hundred fifty thousand dollar check in. And then like it is a lot harder than that to get a two million dollar lead check in. And so, you know, I think they're, as angel investors, like we just never really had to think about round dynamics that much. And that became much more top of mind for us as we built out the fund is, you know, our elbows had to get a little bit sharper. We had to think about kind of how we positioned the fund in these rounds. And, you know, that those were both really valuable learning experiences for us. Our thesis for the fund has always been like, very classically driven, I think, by like venture. We don't know what categories are going to break out in crypto first. We know a lot of these things are not going to work. So let's try to invest as early as possible and let's really drive it by teams. So, you know, I think our view was like one, any lasting companies are going to have to be here through multiple cycles. A lot of the successes we had had personally, OpenSea, Dune Analytics, teams like that, no one gave you shit about those companies for a long time. Like OpenSea, I think the first three, like three years into the business, they had 10 employees. Like it was just not like there were maybe 200 users of the product and they just kept building. And Dune is another example where like, I think essentially every fund in the industry said no to them at some point. These people didn't think it was going to be a big business. And so for us, it was really, you know, is is this team, do they have the tenacity? Do they have the grit to be here through multiple cycles? Because our view is like crypto is hard. It is like can be glamorous in a bull market and celebrities come in and it seems cool. But like really when you get down to brass tacks, building companies in crypto is incredibly difficult. And the second thing, and I, I think this is really a learning driven by some investments we made in the first fund for, for the second, now other framing we use for every company is like, is this solving a real problem? And that sounds like so basic and honestly kind of stupid as I say it, but I think you look at 90% of teams building in crypto and, and they are actually, they don't meet this threshold. So for us, it is, okay, are you, you're building a B2B business, let's say, like we actually want to talk to your first three customers. We want to like know that you understand who they are and we want to like know firsthand that this is a mission critical problem for them. And that has really informed a lot of how we, we've made investments look forward. So, you know, I think fund two, which we were fortunate to close about a year ago, it's a $65 million fund, really a continuation of the strategy from fund one. But I think, you know, fund one, we were generally writing 250 to $500,000 checks. 
So oftentimes, like the second or third board, just checking around out of this fund, we're writing half a million to one and a half million dollar checks. Generally, you call it leading or co-leading kind of half of their rounds we do. The strategy has really been the same, just larger check sizes. And I think really, you know, we still look at this from like a sort of a classic like seed stage venture lens. I think the comment around the differences between angel investing and being operating a fund focus on the early stage and the round dynamics and the portfolio construction is an important consideration. What uh, what have been some of your biggest learnings in terms of, you know, that that sharpening your your elbows and trying to lead rounds just because ownership is key in terms of being able to have a substantial ownership percentage in these projects and if they are successful then it is meaningful to the return profile of the fund what have you guys learned in in terms of trying to lead rounds trying to have material ownership percentage what has resonated beyond just like the pitch of what lattice is but like what really motivates founders to be like okay we want regan and mike and lattice to be leading this round yeah so you know on the first side i think you talked about stealthies you've been doing this for a long time and they would say hey ownership really matters like we've seen the math in a lot of venture funds and then honestly what us like probably a lot of managers you know said okay yeah we, we understand that and then we, we wrote some small checks and deals were like that was all we could do and, and we were excited and you know you you generally actually see the math when it works out and so you know we have some companies in, in our first fund that were really excited that have done really well but you know maybe it was like an initial two hundred thousand dollar check out of a 20 million dollar fund and so even if that investment has 10 or 20 x it's just like not that meaningful in the context of the fund so that's been a lesson for us and has driven kind of how we've invested out of our second fund which is like we really need to have a path to owning at least five percent of this business and uh, like everything, we've made some exceptions to that rule. For example, if we're buying liquid tokens, maybe it's a little bit different. But we really tried to try to just like use that as our north star. You know, in terms of leading rounds and positioning the fund in the market, generally our view was just, especially during a bull market when it was more competitive and to get into rounds, you really needed to just have able to like explain to founders very concisely in a single sentence. This is what we can do for you. So you should take our money because we provide liquidity on DeFi protocols. We can do that for you. Or you should take our money because we have the best security experts on staff and we can help you with a security audit. Um, and so our pitch really just kind of resonated on growth and go-to-market strategy. Hey, you are building a decentralized network. You want to launch a token. That is a very important thing and, and part of your plan. And like we have done 40 of these. We know we just have more data points than anyone else. And for businesses that are kind of building, you know, something uh, infrastructure, enterprise focused, whatever you want to call it. And we, we've had made a bunch of those investments. I can talk about Mike's background. You know, he basically brought in all of the business that Coins did for four years. There are maybe 10 people on earth who have any kind of like enterprise sales experience that he does in crypto. And so I think if you're talking to especially technical founders that just like have less experience doing that, that is a, that pitch not always, but often that's with them. And so that's really been, that's kind of how we sold the fund. 
you know, it's also now we have like a whole process we go through whenever we want to run a deal. And I'm not going to share like <laughs> what our secret sauce is, but like we take it very seriously. Like we look at this as like a sales cycle. And so whether it's getting founder references to like proactively reach out to when we've made it a term sheet offer, like we, we really run through a process to try to win deals we're excited about. Yeah. I thank you for, for sharing that. And I think there's so much art. There, there's definitely some science in terms of, you know, portfolio construction and, and thinking through the math, the math of how many investments to make, what ownership percentage, but then there's a lot of art in terms of like, this is a fight for the best deals and trying to meet the best founders. And I, I love that you guys have built a process around the softer side of a venture. You said earlier that you never know where the next thing in crypto is going to come from. You you do have a, a knack for seeing things early. You angel invested into OpenSea, into Dune. I know you guys were involved with Axie Infinity. And I know, I, I can't remember when I first saw it, but you guys started doing some writing around a new thesis that you were forming at Lattice called Tippin, Token Incentivized Physical Infrastructure Networks. So while you never really know what the next thing that's coming in crypto, given your experience in the space and, and your search for real use cases, I think you guys probably saw a general trend and wanted to define it in your own heads and then share it more broadly such that you can look for businesses and protocols that scratch what you think is the itch that crypto is trying to solve for in this particular vertical. Can you walk us through what Tippin is from your perspective and what are some businesses or protocols that you guys have invested in that you think are emblematic of that thesis? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So my partner, Mike, has really driven more of this than I am. So if I make any mistakes here, he can correct me. But yeah, you know, I think we saw Helium as kind of a story of just how how well token incentives can work for subsidizing, you know, marketplace growth. So, you know, I think you take a step back and you look at marketplaces of like a very big theme adventure in the 2010s, right? You had Uber, you had Airbnb, you had DoorDash. And these two-sided physical marketplaces could scale to enormous scale, right? Airbnb, let's say, is doing $100 billion in GFP a year. I, I don't know that it's actually true, but it's probably in that ballpark. But early on, right, like you need to kind of bootstrap both sides of that marketplace. And historically, the way that companies did it, you know, Uber raised like $12 billion or some very large amount of money. And you would basically just like raise venture money and throw it at the problem. You know, one that like often created these leaky buckets where there's a lot of churn on both sides of those marketplaces, but also like none of those early users really had any upside in, in that network. You know, I think famously Airbnb like allowed hosts to kind of like buy shares early at the IPO, but like generally you could have been the second Airbnb host and like it wouldn't have mattered if you were like the two millionth, right? Like you just had no upside. And so I think what we've seen with crypto assets is by giving people an ownership in these networks, you can create a very rapid fan base. So Chainlink is maybe a, a famous example where they, you know, have the Link Marines, people who own Link, and kind of everything that the Chainlink team does, they help amplify. So for example, like if you see a Chainlink product announcement, 
that is going to get like way more traction on Twitter than a comparably sized company just announcing something. So Helium, you know, going back to, to that is, is essentially like a mesh IoT network. Basically, people have these little hotspots they can put in their house and, you know, it, it basically broadcasts like very low bandwidth data that like IoT devices can can plug into. And the team had been working on this since like 2013, wanting to kind of get this network out the door. But they could never figure out the cold start problem, right? This network is maybe very useful if it's like exists everywhere and like a company with a lot of IoT devices can leverage it. But if it only works in like downtown San Francisco, like it's just not that useful to many people. So how you kind of incentivize supply side growth in these marketplaces, especially ones that require a physical build out when there is not demand on day one, is a hard problem to solve. And generally, as I mentioned, companies would just do this through raising a bunch of venture money and throwing that money at the problem. Helium kind of pioneered this model where it was like, all right, actually, what if we introduce a uh, token to, you know, govern and give ownership in that work and we can like give that to early adopters and so it's potentially more capital efficient for us and it gives early adopters upside of the network and kind of actually creates more even than early users just like early promoters of it. and so Killian did that with like a lot of success i think offhand they have about a million of these hotspots worldwide i think it's probably the fastest growing like physical network in history and, and that model worked really well now, it hasn't worked perfectly, and Helium has been somewhat controversial because there's actually not that much demand for the IoT network. And these token incentives can almost work too well, where like when Helium, when the native token HNT was rocketing, people were earning an insane amount of money. So you had a lot of people trying to scam the network, you had a lot of people building out these in areas where maybe you would never actually need it, for example, the middle of Nebraska. But generally, I think Helium proved that you can like roll out these physical networks efficiently through tokens as a incentive mechanism. So we've gotten excited about that vision and have sort of made, and we made a number of investments in this category. I think two that have been publicly announced. One is Demo, which is doing this for auto data, essentially incentivizing people to connect their cars to a, an open data network where you essentially stream real-time data for your car into the network. And, you know, their vision is like, can we bootstrap that network to like a critical mass of cars through tokens? And then we have a company in our second fund called React that's doing this through for home battery storage. So basically, can you incentivize people to connect batteries to the grid and create these things called virtual power plants, which basically, you know, kind of help help power networks match supply and demand, which is, is becoming a bigger problem as, as we shift to renewables and happy to talk about that more. But yeah, I think generally for us, it's just we think this model really is like a new mechanism for marketplaces to grow. We think this model can work in like a number of industries. And we've seen new audiences get excited about the possibility of these networks. And it's kind of brought a new audience into crypto. The transition from consumer slash customer into owner is such a powerful primitive if you just think about basic incentives one it's it's great for the team to know via tokens and and everything being on chain you know who's involved in this network so they can activate those users and you know leverage them like Chainlink does with the link marines but then also to just create that broader network effect where you're more likely to 
participate, talk about it with your friends when you actually feel like you have an ownership stake in the company protocol network that you're participating in. I actually saw an interesting more web two-ish example of this where clearly some of the the web three influence has permeated into web two business models is with Substack allowing some of its writers to invest into their most recent private financing round, an opportunity that historically has not really been made available to users of a product. So I think that idea has resonated with founders and it makes sense to align with those who are already using the product. So I think it's definitely a category and a new model that all of crypto has kind of fallen in love with and with Helium being the first example of it, but it can clearly be applied to other companies and and initiatives as well. And it kind of leads me to my next question, which is last year was brutal for crypto. Everything from Luna, 3AC, FTX, etc. We it was nothing but filled with landmines. And so I think the last six months, crypto has been looking at itself in the mirror saying, what are we all doing here? Or is this just a giant casino? What are the use cases? How is crypto technology making life better? And I'd like to flip that question to you what are some of the use cases that you're seeing from your early stage seat that are indicative of crypto's potential? And and what I mean by that is what can crypto offer this world through the lens of its projects? So what, what are some of the, the use cases that, that you're seeing and they are excited about? Look, crypto is both I think today useless to the vast majority of people. And like, honestly, I think if like we all just like admitted that we'd be better off, you know, really the burden is on us to like make and fund just more useful products rather than more quantities. I think you look at what exists today and, you know, I think there's more swaths of crypto that, that actually serve like a real use case. So I think you look at something like DeFi, right? Like you have kind of the first globally accessible money markets. Something like GMX trades billions of dollars a month. And, you know, anyone from anywhere on earth can just like trade with each other. And today, like, yes, it is just like you're largely trading crypto assets and like is really just kind of this reflexive thing, but like it works and people use it. Like it really is like, I think, foundational, um, innovation in capital markets and like i think we are seeing still very early and like how DeFi can like work with with other industries i think on the nft side you know you have musicians and artists where they've like funded initial albums and projects through nft sales you've seen digital art go through this renaissance you've seen um digital playing cards kind of become a thing i mean nba top shop has floundered recently but like you had hundreds of thousands of people trading digital trading cards and having a good time doing it. You know, that's all like forms of entertainment that have existed for decades, just kind of in their digital form. I think on the consumer app side, you know, you have things like POAP, which is kind of POAP is proof of attendance protocol. Basically, you can like kind of mint these digital stickers for being at events. Over a million people have minted them and they're fun, right? I was at this meetup and like, 
I want to claim a sticker and like show it off in my wallet that I was there. And it just kind of goes into one of the one of the seven sins, right? Pride. But like that's how most consumer apps have, have kind of, you know, scaled for for years. So I think you look at a number of categories and there are products that are working. I think you then take that into like, how are these making people's lives better, maybe and going just beyond entertainment. I think, you know, categories we look at, one is these kind of token, you tip in or data DAOs. There's a number of tools for them, but essentially, you know, products that allow people to monetize their data or monetize something they are doing more directly than they can today and to claim ownership in that. And so I think we're seeing that with uh, Demo, with React. We invested in a company building kind of like allowing people to monetize their own consumer spending data directly called Delphia. There's a lot of swings at that that I think could be like net beneficial to consumers. And then I think, you know, beyond that, like we've talked to a bunch of companies building in emerging markets. I think we're still really kind of like seeing stable coins as a, a store of value for countries that maybe have some dollar scarcity. But I remain, you know, convinced that there's a lot that crypto can offer people where maybe their financial system doesn't work as well today as it does in the U.S. But I think like generally the industry has underinvested in those use cases. And so maybe they're not as far along as they could be. Even the most rudimentary use case of being able to buy US dollar denominated stablecoin to us in the US that may not be you know, innovative and, and life-changing, but talk about that innovation with someone in Turkey or in Lebanon and the fact that they can access a durable form of U.S. dollars that is outside the control of their government, I, I think that's a, a very powerful innovation. And totally agree with you know the what what you detailed regarding you know data DAOs and DeFi, and then with creators and NFTs. And I wanted to touch on a, a recent deal you announced just because I thought it was fun and, and interesting. So I'd love for you to shine a light on Ensemble. Yeah. So we announced, I think Ensemble announced around this week or last week. Yeah. They're, they're basically building a platform for creators to kind of monetize the like artifacts of the creative process. So for example, you're building a video game or an animated movie, and there's a lot of like sketches that come Right before you kind of create this complex animation, you have like sketches and storyboards. If you're, you know, a musician, there's like raw vocals, there's raw instrumentals, there's a lot of steps before you kind of end up with like a finished product in, in the form of like a song you publish. And so, you know, I think that team is really offering creators a way to monetize those artifacts digitally in just a way they haven't before. So, you know, they've seen really strong, really success with a few digital artists where like their core fan base is really excited to collect these kind of, you know, pieces of memorabilia that come out of the creative process. And going back to uh, what I talked about, kind of what we look for founders, you know, beyond McKenzie being awesome and really having a ton of grit, we spoke to a bunch of creators as part of diligence and like it solves a real problem for them. You know, if you're an artist or you're a musician, creating new revenue streams is is really important to you and you know they're they're creating a way for these artists to kind of monetize work that they just have sitting around but like the combination of like ethereum and nfts and 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 what ensemble is doing 
allows them to kind of monetize those those assets in a way they couldn't have earlier. So yeah, we're we're really excited about what they're uh, what they're building. I think it's so cool because the the imperfect drafts of the creative process add so much color to the ultimate finished product. And if you were to talk to any art historian or they love looking at the unfinished product because it provides a lens into the finished product. So the fact that artists can benefit from that and then collectors and just general audience can have additional context is just by seeing everything from an on-chain digital first perspective is uh, a new unlock that and I'm excited that to see what Ensemble is able to develop and and have Lattice support them in that vision. Regan, this has been awesome, jam-packed with insights. Thank you for spending your time here today. At the Senius Studio, we always love to wrap up each episode with contrarian spicy takes, first inside of crypto and then outside of crypto. So what is your most spicy, jalapeno-infused contrarian take within crypto you know we're yeah we're usually not ever like not the brashest people we're not kind of like throwing out bombs on twitter so maybe this is like a little tamer than than most but you know i i think going into what i said earlier like i view is like the industry like crypto is not useful to the vast majority of people on earth and i think like anyone there's a lot of idealism there's people who feel very like philosophically driven by strong views in the industry i think you look at this from a practical lens and like this is just true so that excites me because I think there's a huge opportunity for us to make crypto useful for most people. But I think we need to be more honest about that. And I just don't think most people agree with that. I, I agree. And therein lies the TAM, right? Look at what crypto has already accomplished thus far. And 99 out of 100 people you walk by on the street have never used crypto. They may own a little bit, just resting on Coinbase or in a MetaMask wallet, but they don't use it in their day-to-day life. And I think that's a lot of market that crypto can go after. Flipping that question to outside of crypto, what is your spiciest contrarian take outside of crypto? I I, tend to, like, I, I generally have an optimistic view of the world. And I think, you know, if you read the news or spend your day on Twitter, there is like a massive, insanely massive amount of negativity. I, I try to look at things optimistically, uh, optimistically. And I generally think the world is getting better. And I think like technology enables a large part of that. So, you know, there's huge challenges we have, but I'm generally optimistic that like technology, human ingenuity can solve a lot of them, which, you know, I think a lot of people sort of doomerous lens obviously disagrees with i i agree and i share that optimistic view with you and i bet people in any other century or era would certainly love to trade spots with us and sit comfortably where we're at right now so regan thank you so much this was awesome where can people follow along with you mike in the lattice journey yeah, I think just like Twitter, my, my handle is just my first name, last name, R-E-G-A-N-B-O-C-M-A-N. It's probably the best place. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on and we'll catch everyone next time. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. 
Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senius Capital content, check us out at seniuscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.